Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, friends. Welcome back. If you're back, welcome if you're new. So excited to have you here. We are back, back, back again with Jess to talk about a case from your beloved hometown, Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. (laughs) For this week's case, the content warnings are murder, sexual assault, and mass holes. Mass holes. (laughs) Mass holes. You gotta. (laughs) Let's just keep it real. So my sources for this episode were Wikipedia. I used an article from biography.com and an article from the Boston Globe, as well as my own personal research. Today, we're talking about the Boston Strangler. And like I mentioned, I have some personal research that I probably have mentioned a bunch of times on the podcast, and here we finally are. I will say, and I don't know if I mentioned this later, but reading what I wrote 10 years ago, 11 years ago in college, was terrible. Like, it's just ego crushing, but I think that's probably a good thing. Like, I don't want to look back on my shit from 10 years ago and feel like it was great. Uh, But wow, was I disgusted with myself doing the rewrites (laughs) on these notes that I found. We all start somewhere. These murders, the Boston Strangler murders, how most people call them, they were also called the Silk Stocking murders for some time. My personal connection to this case, in college, I took an investigative journalism course as one of my senior courses. And my professor in that course was the nephew of the last known victim. And it was in that course that I also did the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. In 2003, my college professor, Casey Sherman, released a book where he alleged that his aunt Mary was killed by another man. I believe it was a guy that Mary had either briefly dated or rejected is my hazy memory. And my professor actually confronted this man on a golf course. Are you serious? Bitch, I know it was you interrupted my man's, what is that, like 18 holes? Whatever, golf term. (laughs) And this was not. Proved not to be this man, but years and years later. So at the time that I took the class, a lot of these developments hadn't occurred. So some of this stuff was even new for me to hear as I was doing this research. In my class, we did go on a field trip and we went to all of the crime scene areas in Boston proper, like walked in front of the buildings, got an idea for what the neighborhood was like. And so that was like a pretty unique experience for me. Like I said, since I graduated in 2010, there have been a lot of new developments in the case related to DNA. Albert DeSalvo, who everyone knows as the Boston Strangler, was born on September 3rd, 1931 in Chelsea, Massachusetts, to Frank and Charlotte DeSalvo. Chelsea is a city in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, directly across the Mystic River from Boston. A total area of just two and a half square miles, it's actually the smallest city in Massachusetts. Albert did not have a good childhood. His dad was a very volatile alcoholic who regularly physically abused his mother. Albert had four siblings, and all of them would be forced to watch physical and sexual abuse on a daily basis. Frank, the father, would very often bring sex workers home and engage in sex with them, forcing Charlotte and the children to watch. You sick fuck. (laughs) 
from a young age, Albert began abusing small animals. He's getting in issues with the police, having trouble with the cops. He gets into the habit of shoplifting and stealing, and he gets arrested for the first time when he's 12. Wow. For battery and robbery. In December 1943, he's sent to the Lyman School for Boys. This is basically a juvenile detention home. He's released on parole in October 1944 and gets a job working as a delivery boy. Not too long after, in August 1946, he's caught stealing a car and it's right back to Lyman. He finishes out his second sentence at Lyman and then joins the army. He completes his first tour of duty. He is promptly discharged and then re-enlists and is honorably discharged again. So I don't know what... Albert moves back to Massachusetts and meets a German woman named Ermgard Beck. They have a child together, and their child is disabled. So Ermgard is very hesitant to have sex with Albert. She's really afraid of getting pregnant again. She is said to have called Albert highly sexed, and eventually they do have another child, a healthy baby boy. Albert gets a job working at a factory in Malden, Massachusetts, and life seems good. Albert is known at work as a good employee, in the community as a good husband. He's well-liked among his peers, but he's definitely one of those people that you know is an extreme embellisher to the point where you doubt, are they even telling the truth? In the fall of 1964, police are trying to solve a series of rapes committed by a man who had been called the measuring man or the green man. A man who would approach women living alone at home, convince them that he was a tailor or a maintenance worker, and then force himself inside their home, sometimes sexually assaulting them. At the same time, they believe there is an unrelated serial killer operating in Boston. Between June 14th, 1962 and January 4th, 1964, 11 single women between the ages of 19 and 85 had been murdered in the greater Boston area. Are all the murders the same? Most of the women had been sexually assaulted and strangled in their apartments. I mean, obviously anyone, but 85, it's like, really? Right. Ugh. Two women who were murdered, Margaret Davis, who was 60, she lived in Roxbury, and Cheryl Laird, who was 14, from Lawrence. Oh they originally were thought to have been the Boston Strangler, but later their deaths were found to be unrelated. Okay. Anna Slessers was a 56-year-old Latvian immigrant who moved to the States in response to World War II. She was extremely devoted to her children and really loved being a mom. And she ends up living in Boston. She had been divorced, but was not dating. She had dark hair and excellent skin. Like even in these pictures from back in the day, you can tell she was on the skincare routine. Anna lived alone at 77 Gainsborough Street in a community made up mostly of college students and families. She also worked as a seamstress in Chinatown. She was killed on June 14th, 1964. She had made plans to attend a memorial service in honor of Latvians killed in the Russian invasion that had happened recently. And her son came to pick her up that night and found her dead in her apartment. The apartment had been staged to look like a botched robbery. Anna was sexually assaulted, most likely with an unknown object. And there were very clear signs of a struggle. Her house coat had been torn open. Around her neck was the cord from her bathrobe in a very big and obnoxious bow. And there were also scratches on her neck. Nearby, there is a broken men's belt. This would indicate that it had been broken while attempting to strangle her with it. 
Her son says she has no enemies. She lives a really quiet life. And the police feel that a burglar accessed the apartment through the scaffolding outside. They do find eight suspects that they question, but there are no ties between any of those men to the murderer. And so they're all released and there's just no leads. 85-year-old Mary Mullen is the next victim. She lives alone at 1435 Commonwealth Ave in the Back Bay. On Thursday, June 28, 1962, her body is found on the sofa of her apartment. Her cause of death was actually a heart attack, and it's Mm. believed that she was literally scared to death. Yeah. 85 years old. Very reasonable. Yeah. Nina Nichols was a 68-year-old widow. She was a retired physiotherapist. Her specialty was maximizing human movement. After injuries, working with people to make sure they could regain as much function as possible. She lives alone at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue and had no close male friends besides her brother-in-law, Chester Stedman. She leads also a pretty quiet life. Nina is found dead on June 30th, 1962. Chester calls her, and when he can't get her on the phone, he calls the superintendent of her apartment building. When the superintendent keys in sometime around 7.30 p.m., he finds Nina's body on the bedroom floor. Her bra is pushed up, so her chest is bare and exposed. Her pink robe is torn at the waist, and there were two nylon stockings tied around her neck. She had also been sexually assaulted with a wine bottle, which is just depraved. Yeah. Her apartment was also ransacked, but many valuables, cash, silverware, and a camera were all left behind. 65-year-old Helen Blake lived on 73 Newell Street in Lynn. Lynn, Lynn, city of sin. You never go out the way you come in. Shockingly, that street sounds familiar only because I spent some time in the North Shore. Otherwise, I would not be like, what? (laughs) Helen was divorced and lived alone and worked in Lynn as a nurse. Around the same time that Nina's body is discovered, Helen's neighbor hears furniture being moved around upstairs. She assumes Helen is doing just a deep clean of the apartment. Her neighbors can't get her on the phone, and eventually the building custodian keys in to go check up on her and finds her body. She had been left face down on her bed, strangled with two nylons that had been tied together around her neck. Her pajama bottoms are on the floor nearby, and her bra was tied underneath her chin. So more of this just like garish staging. Yeah. Helen was sexually assaulted. There were lacerations to her vagina and anus, but there was no evidence of semen, which would indicate she had not been raped. Helen was robbed. There were two valuable rings taken off her fingers. At this point, the papers start running headlines, referring to the cases as the silk stocking murders and calling the suspect the mad triple killer. Mad triple killer? Not creative at all. but It's, you know, a lot of these news articles also don't have much information about the women. I really Mm -hmm. had to dig to find like these small bits of information for some of these women. And it just shows the sensationalism and focus on like who is this genius killer that's escaping and we're going to give a nickname instead of just honoring these women and working to protect women no regard to the victims at all exactly like most of the other women ida erga lived alone at seven 
Grove Street in the West End of Boston. She's lived in the same fifth floor apartment for 15 years in Beacon Hill. On August 21st, 1962, her cousin discovers her body. Her brown nightgown was completely torn, so she was exposed like some of the other women. Ida's hyoid bone was broken which indicates a manual strangulation. If anybody doesn't know, the hyoid bone is a small triangle-shaped bone in your neck. It's usually only broken if somebody strangles you to death. It's really, really rare that it gets broken any other way. The killer had wrapped a white pillowcase around her neck after strangling her, and the blood evidence showed that Ida was attacked in her bedroom before being dragged to the living room. Her head, mouth, and ears were all covered in blood, and the killer went even farther this time with staging and actually posed her body. He propped her legs up on chairs, put a pillow underneath her, and made sure she was just completely exposed the second anyone walked into the apartment. So the hyoid bone is a horseshoe-shaped bone situated in the anterior midline of the neck between the chin and thyroid cartilage. It is not easily susceptible to fracture. It's usually found in cases of murder or physical abuse because it would indicate throttling or strangulation for adults, not necessarily for children or adolescents because that bone is still flexible. It hasn't fully ossified. So Ida is the furthest so far in staging. This is like a very obvious attempt to just humiliate, further desecrate her body. Besides Anna Slessers, she is the only victim among the elder women who was not found with stockings. Mm -hmm. Jane Sullivan is a night nurse at Longwood Hospital. She lives alone in Dorchester at 435 Columbia Road. She's found on August 21st, 1962, face down in the bathtub, kneeling with her head and forearms in the water. Her house coat had been yanked up over her shoulders, so the bottom half of her body was exposed, and she was strangled with two nylon stockings. Jane, unfortunately, was dead for a week before her body was found in the apartment. Sophie Clark is 20 years old and works in Beacon Hill as a hospital technician. She's also in night school at the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology. Sophie doesn't live alone, so her roommate finds her body in their apartment at 315 Huntington Avenue in Fenway on December 5th, 1962. Sophie's body is left on her back, and her blue housecoat and bra are torn. She is wearing a garter belt and black stockings and had been strangled with a stocking tangled together with a petticoat. Near Sophie's body, the police spot suspicious stains, and they do identify them as semen stains. 22-year-old Patricia Bassett was found on December 31st, 1962 at her home at 515 Park Drive in Fenway. Over the Christmas break, Patricia had visited her alma mater, Middlebury College. She had been the editor of the yearbook there, and her friend said on that trip she had actually mentioned the Boston Strangler and said she wasn't afraid of him. Patricia works in Kenmore Square as a receptionist for an engineering company, and it's very strange that she would not show up. So her boss calls the janitor of the building she lives in and asks them to check. When the janitor enters, he finds Patricia's body in her bed. She had been strangled with four pieces of clothing. A blouse is tied to her neck. 
then a nylon stocking on top of it, and then another layer of two stockings tied together. Patricia's autopsy also shows that she was one month pregnant, and it's not known if Patricia knew that or not when she died. Mary Ann Brown is found at home in her apartment at 319 Park Ave in Lawrence on March 6, 1963. She's 69 years old, lives alone like most of the other women, and she's found in her kitchen. Mary's body was left covered with a sheet. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled to death. There was also a kitchen fork that had been used to stab her breasts, and the killer left it in her chest. Just sick. (laughs) It's just terrible. Progressively, too. Like, just gross. Yeah. Beverly Simons worked as a musical therapist while studying at Boston University. She was in grad school for music and working on her thesis. Her typewriter still had a page in it, and her thesis was on mental aberrations. Just so many freaky coincidences. Beverly's body is found on May 6, 1963 on her bed. She is left nude with her hands tied behind her back. She had been stabbed and strangled with two silk scarves and a nylon stocking tied around her neck. Because the hyoid bone is not broken, they can determine that the cause of death is the stab wounds. There were 16 of them in her neck and chest. So it's also just like escalating really quickly, more and more violent. Marie Evelina Corbin is 58. She lives in Salem. She has breakfast with a neighbor before they split up and make plans to go to mass together at 1 p.m. When Marie doesn't arrive, the neighbor, Flora Manchester, unlocks the door to her apartment and inside she finds Marie's body. Marie had been left draped over the bed, one leg hanging off the bed. There was a stocking tied around her left ankle, another on the bed, and two stockings tied around her neck. She had been raped before being murdered. Joanne Marie Graff lives in Lawrence at 54 Essex Street. She's 22 when she is found on November 23rd, 1963. Joanne didn't show up for a dinner she had planned with friends on Saturday night, and nobody had heard from her. Her landlord stopped by Sunday morning to pick up her rent, but she wasn't home. After she didn't go to mass, her friends decided to call the cops and have them do a welfare check. When the cops get to the apartment, they find her inside. Her blouse had been pulled up and two stockings tied around her neck. She is known to her neighbors as just a very quiet and reserved woman. She didn't have many guests. She taught Sunday school and just did art in her free time. Mary Ann Sullivan is 19 years old when she's found dead in her apartment on January 4th, 1964. Mary Sullivan is my professor's aunt, and I believe that she was killed a few years before he was born, so he only knew her from family stories. Mary was described as having a very happy, bubbly personality. She's from the Cape. She graduated from Barnstable High School before moving to Boston. She lived at 44A Charles Street in Boston, and she has two roommates there. The two women get home from a shift. They work together at the Filene's department store. Throwback to Filene's. I know. Oh, man. Running of the brides. Right? They see Mary's in bed when they get home, and they decide to just let her sleep until it's time for dinner. When they go in again to try to wake her up, they see that she's been murdered. They scream 
and a motorcycle cop outside hears them and responds right to the scene. He finds Mary has been strangled with a nylon stocking and two scarves tied around her neck. During her autopsy, evidence of rape is present. Semen is found on her body. She is the 13th and final victim of the Boston Strangler. So... Back to fall of 1964, the cops are investigating a man that they're calling the measuring man or the green man, not Charlie Day from Always Sunny, like green as in a work uniform, green. So this man would approach women often in their apartments. He would convince him that he was a talent scout. They would be a wonderful model for his agency. They're so gorgeous. They're beautiful. They look like Linda Evangelista. Did you stone those tights? And so he would convince them to let him inside. He would tell them, I just need to get your measurements and make sure we have the right clothes for you. Some women would agree. He would start taking their measurements and then eventually get more and more creepy with a couple of women reporting that he just full on groped them before running out. On October 27, 1964, an unnamed woman files a report with the police. She'd been spending time alone at home when a man claiming to be a detective showed up at her door and started aggressively demanding to come in. She lets him in and he ties her to the bed and sexually assaults her. Then as he's leaving, he turns back and says, I'm sorry. What? Go fuck off. (laughs) Fuck you, dude. Seriously? Choke. She is able to provide the police with a very clear description of him, and a composite sketch is developed. As soon as the sketch is public, cops start getting dozens of calls from women all over Boston and in the greater Boston area that they've also been attacked by this man. Then it's discovered that earlier this same day, a man had approached a home in Bridgewater, Mass., saying that he was having car trouble and asking to be let inside. The homeowner, who randomly went on to become the chief of police in Brockton, Mass., years later, gets super suspicious of this guy and decides to fire his shotgun at the man to get him to leave. Wow. Cops are able to track this man down, and his name is Albert DeSalvo. At first, DeSalvo is only charged with rape. They think he's the green man that they've been looking for. So Albert's in jail, and he starts chatting it up with his cellie, his cellmate, George Nasser, and starts confessing to the murders. George calls up his lawyer, Trash F. Lee Bailey, and tells him, hey, my cellmate's saying all this stuff. F. Lee Bailey was part of the trial team that represented O.J. Simpson in the trial for the murders of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. Mm. F. Lee Bailey decides to take Albert on as a client, and this is like a name-making case for him. Albert DeSalvo is interrogated by Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley. Later, he's hypnotized and interrogated by William Joseph Bryan. This piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. This piece of shit, William Bryan, is one of the founders of hypnotherapy in the United States. And during the Cold War, he worked with the FBI to assist the U.S. engaging in psychological warfare. He was directly involved with Project MKUltra and the lesser known Project Artichoke. And as part of his work for the CIA with these programs, he developed techniques of what he called hypno-conditioning. Very popular conspiracy theory is that William Bryan hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan to assassinate JFK. Sirhan Sirhan has claimed pretty much since 
the murder that he has no memory whatsoever of shooting JFK. So yes, William Bryan is a piece of shit responsible for a lot of trauma and human rights violations. In these interrogations, Albert manages to get some of the details of the crime scenes right, but then doesn't know other details. And there's also no physical evidence linking him to these crimes because it's the fucking 1960s, so DNA isn't even thought of yet. The semen they have is useless with a capital Y. They can't do anything with it. Because the only thing they have on Albert is his confession, they can only put him on trial for his earlier crimes, the robberies and the sexual crimes. F. Lee Bailey goes for a not guilty by reason of insanity defense, and he wants to include in his arguments that the confession was actually false. The judge rules against him, and Albert's trial began in 1967. Albert is examined by a neurologist, Dr. Henry Causal. Dr. Causal was responsible for creating the first sex offender treatment center in Massachusetts, which made me really fucking angry. Effley Bailey really wants to push Albert to take a guilty plea. He wants to avoid Albert getting the death penalty, and he still believes that maybe eventually he could get any verdict overturned with this insanity defense that he wants to use. The jury ends up sentencing Albert to prison for life, and Effley Bailey was very disappointed. He was hoping that Albert would be able to serve his sentence in a secure mental hospital. Quote, my goal was to see the strangler wind up in a hospital where doctors could study and try to find out what made him kill. Society is deprived of a study that might help deter other mass killers who lived among us waiting for the trigger to go off inside them. So first and foremost, his name is Albert, not the strangler. Jesus, fuck. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Do I think it's valuable to study these people's minds psychologically? Sure. Do I think that doing that would deter other people from committing murder? I do not. You can't say that. You can't. Yeah. So Albert is put into Bridgewater State Prison. And in February 1967, he and two other inmates pull a quick jailbreak and they escape. They launch a full manhunt to try to find these three. And while searching the prison, they find a note that Albert left behind on his bed. He said that he escaped because he wanted to bring attention to these poor prison conditions. Oh and gosh. of course, to himself, he wanted some media attention. Three days after the jailbreak, F. Lee Bailey calls the cops and tells them, Albert got in contact with me. You can find him. He's bring you can bring him in peacefully. He's just hanging out in Lynn again. Lynn Lynn City of Sin. You never go out the way you come in. It's one of my favorite rhymes that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> After he's taken into custody, they transfer him to Walpole State Prison, which is a large maximum security facility. When I did radio at Curry, I had a big, big fan who loved to call in from Walpole State. His name was Chris. Mostly it was okay until eventually it got creepy and weird. And I ended up blowing my rape whistle into the phone during some of the heavy breathing. And then he stopped calling me really quick. It just ended. I love it. <laughs> on November 20, ugh, on November 25th, 1973, Albert DeSalvo is found dead in the prison infirmary. An inmate is put on trial for his murder, but the jury is unable to find a verdict. F. Lee Bailey claims that Albert was killed in prison for selling discounted meth. So Albert was price gouging the gangs and selling cheap meth. 
now is the time to talk about theories, including my college professor and the book that he wrote. Which was wrong. Yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> I mean, he's still got the coins, girl. I'm quite <laughs> sure he made some money. It's still up on Amazon. So while Albert DeSalvo confessed, many people believed there was actually more than one killer and the cops fed him information. There were allegations that they showed him crime scene pictures and just engaged in a lot of shady interrogation practices, which, I mean, honestly, Boston police is so not corrupt. I don't know why anyone would possibly think that BPD would do anything that wasn't above board. The heaviest sarcasm. Obviously, we're very critical of cops. Recently put that in the podcast Instagram description and lost a ton of followers, which was (laughs) the point of that. So I was like, this is a good way to clear some people out that don't need to be here. Yep. Another thing that creates some doubt is that the women killed are across a wide range of ages, ethnicities, socioeconomic class, occupation, and all of the murders are different in some way, even though the key aspects remain the same. Most people who knew Albert didn't believe that he could be involved in this. There was a lot of like, he could never, he's the nicest guy. To that, I would just like to say that abusers groom allies just as much as they groom victims. In 2000, Elaine Whitfield Sharp, an attorney specializing in forensic cases, begins representing the family of Mary Sullivan, my professor's aunt, as well as the relatives of Albert DeSalvo. She is able to get a judge to approve a court order to exhume both Mary and Albert's remains for DNA testing. She also fights in court to get evidence and information the government had collected in the case and works with a few different documentary crews to find holes in DeSalvo's confession. So she's identifying things that don't match the physical evidence in the case. DeSalvo had said that he'd strangled Mary with his bare hands, but she actually had been strangled with a ligature. And during the time Elaine is working with the families, a professor of forensic science, James Starr, said at a news conference that a semen-like stain found on Mary's body couldn't be linked to Albert. In 2003, my professor, Casey Sherman, writes his book called A Rose for Mary. Like I said in the opening, he did believe someone else was involved in Mary's murder. And then he goes on to teach my investigative journalism course at Curry College sometime in the 2009-2010 school year. In 2013, Suffolk County District Attorney Daniel F. Conley holds a press conference where he announces that DNA has confirmed Albert DeSalvo has been linked through familial DNA to Mary's crime scene. They exhume Albert's body again for further DNA testing, and nine days later, they report conclusively that Albert was responsible for Mary Sullivan's murder. Redemption. Yes. And that is the story of the victims of the Boston Strangler. The depravity, really wanting to humiliate these women, even in death. I shudder to think what would have happened if he was not caught when he was and what Uh would have continued to happen. The violence that would have just got worse and worse. Yes. You could hear it too with each one. The Boston Strangler is infamous. It's one of those cases that people who are into true crime usually hear about pretty early on. A lot of the serial killers from the 60s have been really romanticized and glamorized in some gross ways. I know not here, not me and my friends here. That's not (laughs) what I'm talking about. But I think that Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, is one of those that really gets a lot of attention on the killer. 
and none on the victims, the women. Well, yeah, we'll say you did a very great job, at least with really focusing on that. Because Thank you. I can only imagine their families and everything to just have to sit there even throughout the years. It's honestly really, it was really depressing. And that's why I had to take so many breaks on these notes. There's so little information and there's maybe like one or two pictures of these women. And then all of the focus is just on him and the conspiracy theories and did he do it? Did he not do it? I'm very glad that the DNA did end up conclusively proving that he was responsible and just kind of like put that to bed forever. I do think a big part of it was that mystery of did he do it? We don't know. There's no evidence. Everybody knows the cops are very corrupt. That's not like a secret. Like cops aren't great. Yeah, I think especially knowing what we know now about false confessions, how cops run interrogations, the coercion, the the tactics that are used. Are there any living family members of the victims? I know for sure that my professor is still going. I saw a bunch of interviews that he did with like the local news in Boston talking about the case. I don't know about the other women, to be honest with you. Everything that came up when I looked was really from the time that the murders were happening or right around Albert confessing and going to jail. Well, I don't know. Maybe your professors, you know, if with recent developments and stuff, um, if there are any living family members, I'd be curious to see, you know, something with along the lines of a take of let's really reclaim their names. And, you know, I'm sure people can go down their lineage and stuff and, and figure out some more. Something to actually honor and memorialize them. Yeah. yeah. I do like whatever I can find information about who they were as a person, as opposed to just what they look like or my take on what they look like, because that's so subjective. Thank you so much for coming back on. This was... I appreciate it. You know, really tough content, really tough subject matter. I'm sure I missed some content warnings at the top, but I'll try to put them in the episode description. And let's go out on a high note if we can. Do you have a song you've been listening to, piece of good news, something that makes you happy? I have not really been listening to music. I've I've started Drake randomly. Oh, the the certified lover boy? Yeah, his new album. And I was talking to my husband and saying, like, I don't think I've ever really listened to a Drake album fully. You know, it's just whatever comes out as singles. I started back with his very first one and realized, yeah, no, he's not for me. So this just kind (laughs) of, I don't need to go down that route. But, you know. Just while we're on the topic, I just want to throw out a big hearty fuck you to Kanye West for bringing out DaBaby and Marilyn Manson, known abusers of women and homophobic pieces of shit. Just a a big hearty fuck you from the very bottom of my heart, from all the way deep in my chest. It just made me so angry. It's like, what are you trying to do here? Thank you. What fucking statement do you think that you're making? My high point this week is that I am moving in a week, which is just insane. By the time this episode comes out, I'll be in my new place. I'm so glad it's finally here and so fucking stressed out about it. (laughs) That's definitely my high point. That's what I'm looking forward to right now. And then also just getting back to the pod. I hope to keep it going. We just hit 13,000 streams yesterday. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a friend and tuning in. I appreciate it so much. And especially those of y'all that have sent emails or dropped comments on Instagram. I just want you to know it really warms my heart. And I love making the podcast. I can't wait to keep doing it. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.
Hi friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. 